Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. Now, I know some of you are expecting this show to be about Trump and Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and the fall of the Trumpian empire, blah, blah, blah. But this week, we're actually going to be talking about something much more important to all of us, the economy and the coming recession. For those looking and satiating for some of that Trump Cohen Manafort conversation, you'll have to tune in next week where we're going to have Emily Jane Fox, Vanity Fair's Cohen Connection and political reporter on to talk about what this all means. And don't worry, there will be plenty more crazy, insane news from now till then. So my guest today is Mary Childs. She's a senior reporter for Barron's Magazine who writes about the stock markets, the bond markets, Tesla, its crazy CEO, finance in general. Mary's going to join us today to explain why we're probably at the very, very, very beginning of a recession and how a possible impeachment of Trump, the China trade war, and deregulation could make things so much worse for all of us. If you don't like Tesla and you have no interest in Elon Musk, fast forward about 10 minutes and you'll get to the talk of the economy and so on. We're going to jump in with uh, Elon Musk, who Mary actually covers quite a bit, and all of his craziness on what this all means. And then we're going to get into the shorts. We're going to get into the market, the yield curve, all that fun stuff. Believe me, you're going to have a great, great time. I'd like to welcome Mary to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. This is very exciting to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Okay, so let's jump right into our favorite nutty, psychopathic, lunatic founder. Did I? Is that too much for an intro? Do you think? Or feels right? Or you think no, I'm that okay. feels about right. Feels right. It feels right. Uh, <laughs> Elon Musk. So, can you kind of give us an overview of what the hell is going on with him, with Tesla, with the SEC, with the short? I mean, this is a broad question, I know, but just so we can kind of set the stage for where we are, and then we can get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of all of it. Absolutely. So Tesla, electric car manufacturer, has been beleaguered by you know production issues, manufacturing issues. Uh, they're way behind on on delivering cars that they've promised. They um, have attracted so much attention and enthusiasm, and people are obsessed with Elon Musk, um, sort of an equal measure on the upside and the downside. So there are people who are fanatically obsessed with him and think he's you know God's gift to humanity. And there are people who are obsessed with, you know, shorting the stock and, you know, saying why it's all a Ponzi scheme, et cetera. So on, um, trying hard to avoid time markers here. (laughs) 
the um, recently Elon Musk tweeted that he had secured funding for uh, a take private of of Tesla. And he just tweeted this kind of offhand in the middle of the day, um, no fanfare, no, you know. As you do. Yeah, no prior notice, just, hey, you know, thinking 420, funding secured, period, send tweet. And obviously, this sparked a huge furor. The markets freaked out. The stock surged. Short sellers obviously caught off guard, uh, enraged, and they it essentially sparked this kind of um, hurricane of, is this you know even legal to do? Did he just commit securities fraud? To what extent can we you know, publicize information via Twitter instead of notifying our shareholders and going through the board and talking to bankers and doing all of the things that, that CEOs typically do? Now, um, Elon Musk is obviously not a traditional CEO in many ways. Um, he's always been kind of iconoclastic, and part of the cult of personality is that he's such a, you know, doesn't follow the rules, and it's like, cool. Um, but in this case, he may have gotten himself in a bit deep. And then the whole thing really got even more complicated with his um, girlfriend, the singer Grimes, having apparently invited um, the uh, rapper Azealia Banks over and from out, from New York, and she came out and... There's just a lot of confusion as to what happened or didn't happen. Azealia was was Instagram storying about how Elon had her phone. He's like, I don't know her. They're a lawyer. He claims he doesn't know Azealia. And she's just going on and on in her stories, lighting him up uh, about the weirdness of the weekend. Him and Grimes, so, actually. So if I told you <clears throat> a year ago that you would be uh, writing for Barons about Azealia Banks, Grimes, Acid, uh, ambient parties, <laughs> Elon Musk, uh, and SEC filings all in the same sentence, would you believe me? Probably not, right? Absolutely not. No. I would be delighted, <laughs> but I would be confused. Yeah. So, okay, so here's the question. It, did he break the law? And if he did break the law, can he go to jail? And or would he, or is he just kind of above the law in the same way, you know, like Trump is and people like that? Well, I mean, I think we there's this big conversation about it, that we don't really seem to prosecute, um, you know, this type of crime. We very rarely jail, quote, bankers, close quote. There's just not sort of a, a, a impulse to jail the managerial class in our country. So under that, uh, no, I would imagine he doesn't necessarily um, have too much to worry about. That being said, it does appear, you know, it's sort of a joke on the Internet that this is like a, a very overt violation of Reg FD. Um, you know, you, you do actually, there is a process for these things. So, you know, if there is not fully secure funding, as he seems to have asserted in one would think clear language on the internet, that's, you know, potentially a very big misrepresentation. And that would actually be, you know, maybe securities fraud. So, um, one hopes that he definitely has secured funding. It does not necessarily look like that. You can get into an argument about what words mean, but you know, you're starting to split hairs at that point. Well, according to Rudy Giuliani, truth is not truth. So maybe but, according uh, to Tesla and Musk, you know, funding is not funding. We'll, we'll exactly. see. Exactly. When he you wasn't secure, <laughs> like he felt really secure, you know. Exactly. <laughs> when you um, uh, when you look at this and the way he acted and the thing the way he's been acting as a, as a crazy CEO, do you think that this is is it the pressure of the short sellers? Is it the is he just is he just you know giving everyone the middle finger? I mean, it seems like 
is it, do you think this is all planned? That that there's some grand Elon Muskian thing that's going on here, or what, what do you think is going on? Um, gosh, so much. So honestly, it feels very much to me like this is the person who needs help. And obviously, so he gave a recent New York Times interview in which he said, you know, if somebody else wants to come be CEO, please do it. I'll give you the reins right now. Um, I think that's a little bit, you know, in contrast to his behavior to that moment and like remains to be seen if he actually would hand over any reins. Because I think he, like a lot of founders, have a hard time or a lot of managers have a hard time sort of giving up control. You know, if you've worked so hard to make something a success, you can get very hyper-focused. The thing is your life. He says he's been working 17-hour days, et cetera. This becomes all-encompassing and, and all-consuming, and then you lose perspective and you start to hyper-focus, and he spends so much time on Twitter. Um, he sort of jokes that he's like, oh, I don't spend that much time, but like it's self-evident that he's just sort of persistently on Twitter replying to trolls and bullying journalists, and you know, all of which does not necessarily serve the purposes of, you know, making production at Tesla better, but really just magnifies his own issues. So he can't get out of his own way. And it, it feels as though this, you know, he he tries to, the more he tries to kind of clamp down, the worse it gets. But it's funny because until things aren't working, that sort of micromanagement, that eccentricity and that weirdness is part of the brand build. And they're like, oh, he's so passionate. Oh, he's so, you know, he's very honest about how, like, he's a wild man, but he's like, loves the company. So, that until there's some di- indication that something's going south, that looks like some kind of genius CEO move. And then now that it's kind of like there are real issues, they had to cut the staff a bit. Um, they've you know trimmed what they say were contractors in June. Uh, these things start to add up to create sort of a negative thing. And then once the tide turns on that sentiment, I guess it, it seems like all of a sudden these erratic behaviors are not so cute anymore. Do you think so? You've um, you've written about you know these the all of these different kind of founders and tech CEOs and so on. And and one of the things that I can't really necessarily figure out with Elon Musk specifically, and with all of them, I guess, but with Elon Musk is, you know, having one good idea is is great, but having multiple good ideas is something else. And Elon didn't actually have the idea for Tesla; he right. bought it, right? Do you think that he is the genius that people play him out to be, or do you think that there's just been kind of a lot of luck and a little bit of shuffling, or what what are your thoughts? That's such a good question. I think about that all the time, because it is, you're exactly right, you have some revelation, and then you can build, you know, the the degree of that success will perpetuate itself and reverberate across the rest of your career, so if, if the idea is good enough, right? So, with Elon Musk, yes, he had some great early successes and then, you know, bought his way into Tesla. And with a lot of these industries that he's managed to break into, they're high barrier entry, uh, high barrier to entry industries. But guess what? If you have a lot of money, that's not such a high barrier. So, yeah, I, I do. I kind of am, am. I weigh this a lot where at a certain point of success, you come to this point where you're in the deal flow and people tell you things and you're exposed to new ideas sooner than everybody else and you're exposed to better information than everybody else and you set up systems to filter that information and you can afford to have this kind of curatorial approach to your own life. And by doing so, you make yourself, you kind of set yourself up 
to naturally be successful. So it's kind of a case of like your own, you know, it becomes self-perpetuating and, and widens the divide against, you know, every Joe Schmo who's, you know, making 60 grand as your engineer working and, and living with two roommates. Like that guy, that girl could be just as brilliant and doesn't have the same opportunity or didn't have that one great idea. So I, I've written a lot in the past about Bill Gross, and uh, who's the founder of PIMCO, the bond management company. And, you know, it's a huge company, huge asset manager, manages everybody's 401k. But, you know, he started it in the 70s, and he's written himself about how he kind of cut people in line in many ways. Like, the luck of the draw, he just happened to be at the forefront of this revolution where, you know, he started out in active bond trading before that was really a thing. He started out in mutual funds right before those exploded. So by cutting in line and being first, you are essentially luck of the draw and then plus a little bit of talent and ability and you're done. So I think it does become sort of, and then the question, the next question is, does it matter? Like, what's the difference between being a genius and just being really rich and having all that access? Because it is sort of a, it's almost yeah. a scale problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's also kind of difficult to tell too of if these guys are are good CEOs or good psychopaths or or what. <laughs> okay, so so let's just look at Musk, Musk's the way he's acted, and I have a question that that. I could only ask you because you're a woman uh, yeah. and I don't know the answer to, but I could kind of, you know, hypothetically kind of think about what the answer might be. But what, what do you think would happen if a female CEO acted this way? Do you think that Musk is getting away with it a little bit because he is not a female CEO? Like, I mean, how would, how do you think this would change if it was someone else? Absolutely. Like, can you imagine? There is no world in which a woman acting like this would have even made it to CEO. There's just, it's, it's just, can you imagine if Marissa Mayer had like teared up at any point in her career? Like, bless her heart, I'm sure she has, but we never had a candid, vulnerable, open, like wildly confessional interview with the New York Times because that would have caused an open revolt at Yahoo and shareholders would have come for her. I mean, they did anyway. She was like perfectly poised. So I just don't like, you know, Elon Musk clearly needs an executive coach, clearly needs somebody telling him when his ideas are bad, clearly reining him in. And he doesn't get that because he's made it this far by being an erratic, brilliant boy genius, like, you know, kind of dashing. Everyone thinks he's so interesting. And if he were a woman, that behavior would have been checked 35 years ago. So I, I mean, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. There's, there's just no world in which a woman would have, would be able to act like this, would have gotten this far acting like this. The more a man is eccentric, sometimes there's a bit of a bifurcation here where, you know, sometimes you really need the adult in the room and clearly Elon does, but his behavior is like the flamethrower thing. I just can't, I just can't imagine a woman even beginning. Mind boggling. Absolutely. It's, no, so but this is so this is an example of 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 where I think maybe he is. I don't know if he's a sociopath or if he's just not a good guy or what. Like, if I, I we I have a barbecue and 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 there's this like there's this electric thing you can get that's not even a flamethrower. It's just like a heat thing to to help you start the barbecue better. And I won't mm-hmm. get it because I have a three year old and I fear that the three year old might like hurt him or his brother wow. or the house or something. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine having a flamethrower in my home. Right. Someone who thinks about the, that it's a good idea as a joke to sell these things, that it doesn't seem like someone who's very stable. Am I wrong? Right. Absolutely not. I think that's completely correct. And he's built this brand and he seems to think it's cute to perpetuate it, that he's just like, 
I don't care, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want, devil may care attitude, which, again, to this point has served him. And, you know, it's very Tony Stark of him. But there's a recklessness and a destructive side of that that I I think you're exactly right. Like, most of us have to go about our lives analyzing danger and risk and acting accordingly. And he's just like, ha ha, flamethrower. Like, because it's illegal or whatever to ship them cross country, he labeled them incorrectly. Like, I don't think that's cute. Sorry. So you, um, you and I have actually both covered a lot of billionaires and um, <clears throat> for, 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 and they're 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 strange people. And uh, I've are. come to the philosophy myself that that they were always strange people, and that they just become stranger when they have more mm-hmm. money. It just kind of puts a magnifying glass on who they are. And when it comes to, I mean, you can talk about billionaires in general. It doesn't have to just be be Elon. But do you think that? Um, that money changes people like like Elon and others or that they're always this way and we just get to see them in a larger light because they have all the money that they have? Ugh, I think about this all the time. There is a principle in economics called, like, it's like the idea of revealed preferences, right? And this is this is like the fundamental question to me. Does it, you know, once you get to a certain point of being rich, of having kind of all the money in the world, you can sort of extract from the world exactly what you want. You don't have to make trade-off choices. You don't have to say, you know, oh, I can't buy this dumb object because I need to eat today. Um, Once you surpass that level of wealth, your whatever weirdness, whatever thing that you're obsessed with that like you no, no one else in the world cares about, but you care a whole lot about like Bill Gross collects a lot of stamps, like Elon Musk loves flamethrowers, stuff like that, that you're like, other people are like, what? You're spending your money on that? Okay. That weirdness becomes more pronounced because you're allowed to express it. But I do think like, you're right. They're completely weird. I don't know. I know a couple normal multi-multi-millionaires. I don't think I know any normal billionaires. And there's sort of a, it's an open question to me whether like the personality traits that make you successful necessarily translate into success. (laughs) Because, you know, most of the billionaires I know are extremely detail-oriented and extremely intense and extremely petty. And as a journalist, you know, I, I wonder if you've run into this too, where like you, you know, you say, oh, you know, he had a, his favorite drink, a glass of apple juice, and you know, they call in a rage, and they're like, it's orange juice, and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> got it. Uh, <laughs> but like the, the the attention to detail that like most of us would let go, a lot of times they just can't. That's a trivial and kind of frivolous example, but these things that, that most people would let go, do they hyper-focus and do they perseverate on these things because they are billionaires and they just are intense and kind of crazy? Or did they become intense and, and crazy as billionaires? Like, which one comes first, the intensity and then it causes the riches? Or do the riches come and then you just get wild and crazy because no one stops you and checks you? I just don't know. What, what do you think? I think, look, I mean, I think that anyone who wants to be that rich has bigger mental problems. I mean, I think it's like if you want to be president of the United States, you right. you have a, you have, there's a, you have a problem. You have a, you, you don't, there are very few people who seem to want to be president um, because they want to, want be to help people. Mm-hmm. I think that they, anyone who, 
who knows the way the system works knows that it's a lot of it is is about you have to have an ego to think like well my ideas are better than your ideas you know yeah. that being said like i look at someone like beto o'rourke and in texas right now and he genuinely seems like the kind of he, he seems like someone who wants to make a difference and and believes that government can make a difference and maybe i've just drank the kool-aid but uh, you know there are very few of those kinds of people but when it yeah. comes to these billionaires you I mean i've covered them for years and and you they they think that they are better and that their ideas are better and sometimes they're right you know sometimes right. they they ended up where they were because they're right and sometimes they they're wrong what the problem i think is is with all these people is that is that they um they start to surround themselves with people that don't tell them they're wrong and that's where things exactly. that, that's where things go 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 badly the steve jobs reality distortion field where you need that to yes. be a visionary and you need to like be able to eat your own cooking and like totally divorce yourself from whatever, you know, holds down normal people, but also you need reality. So it's sort of a, an interesting dance. No, it's, it's, you can, it's completely true. And it's, um, and it, the, the question is, is, is when does it all come crashing down? Because it always does. It always does. You are listening to inside the hive with Nick Bilton. Um, so speaking of crashing down, uh, last question on Musk, and it's really kind of a segue into the larger question of the economy and the markets and whatnot, is there are a tremendous amount of shorts on Tesla. And this is yeah. one of the things that pisses off Elon Musk as much as it pisses off Elon Musk. Why is that the case? And are people missing something by shorting this company so much? Or is Elon missing something by realizing why they're doing it? Such a good question. Um, I think whenever you have such a reckless CEO, it oftentimes does indicate that there may be other problems. Someone who's like fast and loose with uh, regulatory disclosures, there may be other, like it's often a tip of the iceberg kind of feeling. Um, there's a higher propensity, you know, there's if you're identifying traits of someone who might have some kind of personality disorder or who act, who clearly is not acting in the interest of shareholders or whatever, like that uh, often means it's kind of a, um, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, you'll find something else. And um, that's not even to mention the production issues and the like vast operations issues that Tesla's facing. So I think if you, you know, compare the valuation, which, um, has been fluctuating wildly lately because of the tweets and because of all this, you know, short squeeze plus, oh, turns out it was a regulatory problem. Um, it's been an absolute roller coaster. I think trying to evaluate the company's worth is really hard. You have to do a lot of uh, calculations to back into their costs and, and, and what they're doing. And they don't give a whole lot of transparency. And then you have like all these other things attached to the company, like Solar City and different businesses that it's not perfectly clear that they're the favored child. And it's not clear that they're going to be necessarily so profitable if they're not getting the leadership that they need and the intention that they need. So I don't know. If you have a CEO who's spiraling, it certainly makes a lot of sense to not be in the way of that. Um, that being said, I, I mean, I think personally, I would find it hard to stomach that roller coaster as a short or a long so um you know if it were me i would step back but (laughs) but it does look it was very very high value high valuation lately so i don't know but so so 
perfect segue into the larger theme of this, which is that everything seems to have a high valuation lately, right? I mean, it is um, across the board. We have our first trillion dollar company. Um, you know, the the current bull market. Uh, is I think it's the longest on record since World War mm-hmm. II, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, the market's risen 300% since its nine-year low, nine, almost a decade ago. Mm-hmm. What's, is this all going to come crumbling down? And if so, like what sets it off? And do we, I mean, I know you, you've written a lot about this before and how kind of trying to time these markets is a, a fool's errand, but but what do you think's going? What do you think is going on? Do you think everything is overvalued um, across the across the board, and and how do you think this all plays out? Yeah, um, that's the uh, multi-trillion-dollar question. I do think, as you say, timing it is a fool's errand. I, I've been talking to you know money managers for that you know the duration of this bull market, and each year, each minute of every day of each year, they say, oh well. You know, if you had to ask me when the next recession is, I probably would say it's about, you know, 12, 18, 24 months in the future. They always seem to settle around 18 months in the future. And that's been rolling since, you know, March 2009. So I'm not sure necessarily that doesn't invalidate that the next crisis could be 18 months away, but it does lend some, uh, it sort of underscores the importance of, of you know, playing it safe in terms, you don't want to like necessarily put all your chips on, I'm going to go super short the market because it's got a term, we're going to have a recession tomorrow. Um, But that being said, you're right, valuations are wacky in public stocks, in bonds, in private equity, in uh, private debt. There's uh, so much money sloshing around trying to find a home and trying to generate returns. And in a world where, you know, Treasuries haven't yielded very much, which is like the safest asset. Everything's priced off that, so everybody's reaching for yield, saying, "Okay, well, if Treasury's only at two percent or whatever it may be, maybe I'll lend to IBM instead." Okay, well, that's not very much over U.S. Treasuries, so maybe I'll just go a little bit further out the risk spectrum. And as a result, you know, corporate issuers, companies haven't been punished for taking on a ton more leverage. So they're like, "All right, like if you're not going to make me pay more for this, I'll just." Take more money. Fine. Keep going. Give it to me. Exactly. So you've seen this ballooning in the kind of bottom rung of uh, investment grade bonds, corporate bonds, which is the triple B slice. And I mean, that's kind of fine right now. But the day and time, the economic cycle... Isn't that the thing that the same, of, of course, different asset class, but wasn't that the thing that kind of led us to 2007? Well, there was certainly, yeah, there was a ton of borrowing. We had a, a lot more kind of mega LBOs at that time, like club deals with all of, you know, KKR and all of its friends um, budding up to buy out companies and lever them up. And and then that was concurrent with the run-up in, in leverage in the housing market and the run-up in leverage. And so, yes, but it was sort of a part of this beautiful puzzle, um, extremely fragile, codependent um, system of risk. So one hopes that we've... Uh, you know, mitigated that with regulatory changes since, but it's sort of. But have, but wait, but haven't isn't isn't Trump undoing all those regulatory changes? Yes, but because it's been such a long time, uh, of you know having that Dodd Frank babysitter 
bank balance sheets in America, at least, are pretty good. So there's some, you know, they haven't been able to take as much risk for that whole time. And so they like missed out. So they really couldn't, I mean, they'd be hard pressed to get super crazy between now and the next 18 months, um, just levering up like, wow, like even if all of that is stripped back and they're left to their own devices, it would take them a minute to just like get as dirty as they wanted in markets and, and like really cause a problem. So ostensibly, like, because things have, you know, the starting point is now instead of they haven't had this whole decade to lend, lend, lend like crazy. We have a bit of a bit of a safety cushion there. So, but is the, so this is the, the the question that I was thinking about is, okay, so they're going to turn all this, they're not, they're going to turn, they're turning all these things back. And does this inevitably mean that we're going to start to see we're going to see a 2007 happen. Maybe it's, it's of course not going to happen in the next, you know, in the next two years, maybe, but should we be terrified irrelevant of whoever takes office in, in the next, um, next presidential cycle that we are, the, the, the groundwork is being laid for what could be a disaster in a few years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there has been a fair bit of talk in recent years, I mean, it feels like it hasn't abated since the last time about Hyman Minsky, um, an economist who sort of, I'm going to butcher the actual thesis here, but basically um, whenever you have these long, quiet periods of, of low risk and low volatility, people are like, oh, it doesn't, you know, you don't get hurt for taking more risk. I'll just take more risk and add debt. And by doing so, you basically sow the seeds of the next crisis, right, where you reach a little bit too far. You borrow a little bit more than you can afford. And that and inevitably, there's th- that behavior itself is what kind of spurs the next cycle. And you're for sure seeing that now where people are trying to look around and find different ways to generate returns and doing kind of dumb things. Like I just wrote a story for Barron's about direct lending, um, which is truly just you know loans to companies, but they're private. And so many people are getting into the market, so many firms across you know Wall Street, whatever, everybody and their brother is doing it. And so there's been a great, there's no like centralized, uh, you know, data center you, really. There's no ex- uh, clearing. Can you, hmm? can you explain a little bit about how direct lending works and why it's so bad? Sure. Um, <laughs> It's not, it's not inherently bad. It's that, um, so the difference between private loans, these, um, this direct lending and the, the asset class that everybody's really amped about right now versus, you know, the loan market. Typically, loans are much bigger. They're like $250 million and up. And these are corporate loans. You know, you go to a bank, your company, you go to a bank, you ask the bank to please, you know, you want to sell $300 million or whatever of debt, and they will go around and syndicate it to a bunch of people who have money who want to give it to you. So the difference here is you don't have that bank. You just go straight to your friend at Carlisle or wherever and say, yo, I would like some, I would, I need to do this project. I want to do some CapEx. I want to build a building. Can you please lend me 150 million or whatever the size of the loan that you need? And Carlisle says, fantastic. And sometimes there's, um, there'll be another person in that deal. They will sort of little bit syndicate it. But um, for the most part, these are just bilateral direct loans. And they typically, they actually charge a little bit more, like it's a bit more expensive sometimes to go to these direct lenders than it is to actually do a syndicated loan. But if you're a smaller company, you don't have access to the bigger loan market, um, which coincidentally not coincidentally, um, definitionally, if you're a smaller company, you don't have access to bigger capital markets, you have fewer levers to pull when things go south. So if you're this one company that makes a widget and people stop buying your widgets, you're like, oh, no, 
I can't pay this loan back. And Carlisle's like, oh, well, that's a bit of an issue. And there's just like nothing you can do. So that either means Carlisle will take a huge write down on their loan, you go into bankruptcy. There are a lot of kind of not great outcomes for these smaller companies that are less diversified. Um, but, us, you know, the, the idea here is that Carlisle will have, you know, so many of these loans that even writing your loan off at 50 cents on the dollar isn't going to ding them that badly. The problem is if it's a broad-based recession, then they will have lots of things to write down. So you just said the the, the R word, and and <laughs> everyone I know uh, from people who work in finance to media to even restaurateurs all think that there is a recession coming. And mm-hmm. and I'm just curious what you think about that. And and uh, and I know the timing question is the most annoying one because one can never predict timing with anything. If you could, you wouldn't be talking to a loser like me but what what do you think uh what do you think is is everyone right that it's coming and and if if so how long Mm, such an impossible question i mean i do so i have covered bond markets for a long time which either means that because of all of that time covering it or because i chose to cover it i am naturally more pessimistic there's like a a saying or a, I don't know, a theory that stock investors are optimists and bond investors are pessimists because you just, the best you can hope for is a little bit of capital appreciation, but mostly you get your money back at the end. Whereas stock people are like, oh my God, we're going to the moon. This is great. So I cover bonds. I talk to pessimists. We're like, definitely bad things are about to happen. So I've sort of thought that like most of my sources since 2009. (laughs) So that just to throw my credibility out the window. But that being said, yeah, I mean, we have a very flat yield curve. It is a pretty reliable indicator if the yield curve, which is the kind of borrowing schedule for the U.S. Treasury, it says, you know, two years, you pay this much, three years, five years, 10 years, you're supposed to pay more money for more time. But if we're freaking out about the short term, and we're not as concerned about the long term, a yield curve can invert. And there are reasons why this yield curve looks funny right now that may actually be sort of aberrations or unique to right now, or, you know, the indicator is clouded in some way. But usually an inverted yield curve is a pretty reliable indicator that there's something coming down the pike and it's a recession. So, and that doesn't mean that it's tomorrow. It could be one to three years. It could be, you know, whatever, but it's something like seven of the past nine recessions or something like that have had a a inverted yield curve beforehand. Now ours isn't quite there yet. It's just real, real thin. So then you also look at the housing market and the luxury market in New York has taken a huge hit. The tax change, the regulations, um, salt tax change there has been, um, pretty pretty bad for some of these um, higher tax states, higher cost states. Um, and even in some of the states that don't have changes to the, um, you know, deductions for your mortgage, they don't necessarily, like they're softening too. So even in sort of lower tier, you know, entry level, first starter home type pricing, you have some softening. So across the board, that's um, not super great. We do know that playbook. I very seriously doubt that that will necessarily spark some kind of wildfire because we did a little bit learn our lesson last time. So the housing market is a bit less um, levered or at least not, you know, the first domino in a series of extremely levered dominoes. Um, But it does feel like I'm just not sure about the state of the U.S. consumer because 
if there, you know, we had a, um, a delay in the tax rebate in 2017, and because of that delay, it was like a two-week delay, which is not massive, but a ton of people were so tightly wound, their finances were so tightly wound, that they missed their credit card payment because they met, they didn't have that tax rebate. They were counting on that tax rebate. So that says mm. to most people, like, hmm, what if yeah. there's a bit of a change? What if, you know... We, we already kind of saw a washout in Bitcoin where people are reaching for, you know, yield in a way where people are hoping to make this get rich quick scheme. There just seems to be more consumer stress than I feel like I've been hearing for the past, I don't know, five years. Does that feel accurate to you? That No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've... I've um... I, I'm obsessed with real estate. I like I'm the I'm the guy that you know when I land in a city, I pull out Redfin just to kind of see right. w- what everything costs. And and I you know laying in bed at night, I uh, I'll, I'll I just look at houses. It's fun. I, I uh, and I one of the things that you're starting to see, yeah, <clears throat> and it's 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 really fun to kind of imagine what you would do with that eighty million dollar home. Uh, mm-hmm. Or why you wouldn't even take the other eighty million dollar home because it's so hideous. Even if someone gave it to you, it's a lot of those right. in Beverly Hills. But um, but one thing that's been interesting, just anecdotally, is is seeing more homes sitting on the market longer, and also seeing uh, seeing price drops. And um, right. and that I haven't seen uh, at least in the L.A. New York markets. I uh, New York is different because it's gone through its its thing. But in in the L.A. market, I haven't seen that happen. Um, up until the last couple of months, uh, and it's make, makes me think, huh? Well, something something might be afoot here. Right. We experienced so, that. So yeah. I just bought a house in Richmond, Virginia, um, and bought one and sold one. Congratulations! And thank you. And the difference between so we bought and then like a month later sold, and that one month difference it was sort of insane we felt like we like were elbowing people out of the way like in this knife fight to get to buy this house and then by the time we put our house on the market we had like two contracts we were like anyone hello i mean we sold it it was fine but it was <laughs> definitely a huge a huge difference and i think you know that's yeah. not at the 80 million dollar price point you know i am a billionaire i should have mentioned that before but uh, figured petty Such and intense jerk, right so, yeah yeah. My personality. Um, but you're yeah. right. Like the, it, it isn't just New York and L.A. I, I think there was a um, I think it was the CEO of Redfin was talking on their uh, quarterly earnings call about how there's been a softening in Portland, in Seattle, in like all of these markets that have heretofore been incredibly hot. And all of a sudden it just stopped. That, see, to me that I mean, look, I'm not a finance expert, but to me, when you start to see one I, the thing that I've always realized co- working for the Times and the Vanity Fair and so on and covering technology companies and tech stocks and so on is that you, when you see one thing happen, it starts to affect everything. There's a ripple effect exactly. that, that you can't necessarily – you don't see it happen in the moment, but you kind of get to see it in hindsight. And it happens every single time. And um, it's – you know it whether it's the people who can't sell their house that month that don't go out to dinner that week, that the busboy doesn't get to get the tip, you know, blah, 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 the trickle down effect. But, but I, I'm seeing this happen and you're, 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 as you're saying, and I wonder if kind of this is, this is the beginning of, of the recession and we're just kind of, we're just at the very, very, very edge of it. We're Wiley Coyote over the cliff already. We like are. Starting to look down. <clears throat> yeah. Well, if you remember, it, right, it so, wasn't, Oh, sorry. Yeah. There's, there was this moment in February 2007 where, you know, subprime borrowing suddenly became a phrase that everyone knew. 
February 2007. We had so far to go. We had no idea. We were like, oh, you know, maybe we can work off this overhang, you know, like maybe these people that are defaulting on their homes, it'll be fine somehow. Maybe it's contained as subprime. And then, you know, you had a, a very long road ahead where obviously we know what happened and it was not pretty. So yeah, I think you're right. You start to see the ripple effect and like there's this moment of denial. There's the wily coyote floating over the cliff and then, and then farewell. Hopefully we won't fall farewell. too far. Might. So, well, okay, so, here, so, so we only have a little bit of time left, but I wanted to ask you a few questions about things that could make us fall and, and how these things actually are affecting the economy and uh, the mm-hmm. markets and, and what could happen. Um, so we'll just kind of go through, through a few. Uh, so w- what do you think of the trade war in China? Is this something that we should be worried about? Is this going to escalate? Is this going to um, you know, lead to more pessimism, more optimism? How does this play out? So the interesting thing to me is that it really does seem to have a bit of an effect on sentiment, on confidence, and that is a really big part of how things go. Um, So, you know, there was so much optimism in, you know, small business surveys, consumer surveys, University of Michigan sentiment, whatever. All these indicators were doing pretty well. And yes, there's so much instability uh, coming out of D.C. and you just can't predict what's happening next. And it's all very um, chaotic. The market's been remarkably resilient throughout all of that, remarkably just chugging along, just trying to keep its eye on the prize. You know, confidence is good. Earnings are great. Tax thing was good for corporations. So the market has kind of held it together but there's been a bit of a shift in the past couple readings in sentiment where people are like, oh, this trade thing, that could mean something. That could be real. That's where rubber could meet road, right? Where you actually have, oh my God, steel's more expensive. This input's more expensive. Soybeans are more expensive. Whatever it may be because of these increased tariffs, just like an extra tax on consumers and also producers. So all of that can can kind of snowball. And we just don't know, like, we have two strong men trying to face off and like, Forgive me, I'm just not that into that kind of power play, but like it has an, a real impact for consumers. So you're absolutely right. Yes, it could really affect things, but the uncertainty could also affect things, even if nothing comes of the posturing. So it could already be affecting things. We just don't realize it's affecting things uh, exactly. behind the scenes is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> do you think that uh, it, it, with when you have these kinds of two people that – are clearly kind of, you know, playing a game of I'm bigger and stronger than you are, um, and very clearly you're not going to back down from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this just, is this trade war just going to escalate, and or is it going to? We, is there a chance that it just kind of stops and just stays where it is, and that's it? I feel like the North Korea situation um, turned out a bit better than I feel like most of us thought. Right. Like a lot of um, so that's kind of a nice framework that I can, you know, lean on a little bit here where maybe hopefully there's a a parallel where we're like, oh, no. Oh, my God, we're all going to die in a nuclear war. All of a sudden it's like, oh, actually, like, it's fine. We're okay for now. And that's not to say that that situation is resolved by any stretch of the imagination. But there is sort of a a denouement or or at least a standstill that um, 
maybe if we, you know, I don't know the ingredients necessary for that, so I couldn't possibly begin to dream what that could look like. But um, if you have, you know, Larry Kudlow, our, um, who, who advises Trump on all, all of this stuff, is technically very anti-tariff. Now, he, his rhetoric has turned since he's been in the White House and he's, you know, come around to the idea of tariffs. And that was sort of a gradual process for him of, oh, well, blanket tariffs are bad, but specific ones, targeted ones are good. And now it's just like tar- tariffs are all around fine. Um, that be- That's not his ideology and hasn't been for his whole life. So I'm curious if there's some sort of like, I feel like he would be more interested in pushing for a, a kind of, you know, some kind of resolution to this. So I hold out hope, but I don't know what it would look like. All right. So let's just say, so it's been a lot of insane news with Trump the last couple of weeks. Uh, he, uh, of course, has seen his personal lawyer indicted and he was now thrown Trump under the bus and said that he did it, you know, paid off the prostitute the hookers and the whatever they were strippers and playboy models sex and whatever workers. he paid mm-hmm. sex work whatever they were he paid them uh uh and trump had advised him to manafort has been convicted um more stuff coming if the democrats win the house which hopefully they do fingers crossed knock on wood etc uh, etc et uh in and there is a higher chance of impeachment. I, I am very pessimistic that, that there will be impeachment. I think that um, it's it's going to be very difficult for them to actually pull that off. But let's just say hypothetically in a, a dream case scenario, uh, there is um, – do does, does, does the market just disintegrate on that? I mean is it just pure chaos or is there a world in which – you know, the markets are like, hey, you know what? Maybe having this lunatic in office wasn't a bad idea and and, uh, and that we, we won't hit a recession, we won't go through all these things, and the markets do the opposite. I think that's such a great question, too. It feels like, so if you recall the night of the election, futures plummeted. Everyone was like, oh, my God, I didn't expect this. Everything dropped. Everyone sort of was panicking. And then the next day, uh, what investor was it? Carl Icahn who went home and bought like a billion dollars of like whatever S and P minis and thought he was pretty clever. Yeah. I forget what it was, but the the market sprang right back and they're like, oh, I forgot. You know, this guy's good for taxes and whatever. And a friend, um, well, actually, you will read in Lake Success Gary Steingart's forthcoming book. There's a super great line that is. I'm sorry, it's a spoiler, it's sort of near the end, that says that the market is functionally, it just acts like a middle-aged white man. And I think that that's a, a pretty good analysis because the market like was upset and then it was like, actually, this is fine for me. I'll do fine. And that has turned out to be completely true. And with that lens, it's sort of hard to say if you personify the market as a middle-aged white man who's like kind of optimistic and just muddling through, like, does it necessarily mean if there's an impeachment that, that that's bad for, you know, consumers and bad for companies and bad for corporate earnings on a forward-looking basis. I mean, markets hate uncertainty, but this trade war thing is kind of sucked, so maybe it's not that bad. And I do think there's also in the markets a phenomenon of sell the rumor, um, 
buy the rumor, sell the news, which in, you know, Mm -hmm. when it's bad news is the inverse. So it's like, okay, if there's this overhang that the market's really nervous about and kind of, you know, has had all these like anxieties about once that overhang is removed, there's always like this relief rally. And I think you'd be hard pressed to say that the the entire time Trump has been in office, there hasn't been a bit of an anxiety about that. So while the conventional wisdom would sort of indicate, yeah, markets would plummet because no one likes an impeached, like that's just chaos at the top of, you know, the country that's bad. There's still, there's kind of a window of hope where maybe it's fine. Maybe we just take out the uncertainty. Like this thing happened. Phew. It actually happened. We can, we can move on now. And there also probably will be less of a trade war. I don't know. I mean, I guess that kind of instability would definitely have some near term, like crazy volatility, but there is a a low odds, but a, a possibility that things turn out just fine. When you, what's so interesting is you and I we sit we sit here and talk about all these things that that you know the Trump administration is doing to roll back all just the things that are designed to protect consumers. Are there you talk to a lot of sources in the markets, um, bond, you know, stock market, so on. When they see these changes happen, I know that it's it's their business to make themselves richer. But is there ever a moment where they're like, eh, this is probably not a good idea. This could really fuck up the entire economy or hurt a lot of people. Or a lot of people could lose their homes or their jobs or whatever. Do any of them say that or they or they just have a different ilk? Ugh. it's It runs the gamut, right? Like there are certainly some that are like totally divorced from the kind of social impact of things and they don't really remember that part. But I would say that's a small sliver, honestly. Um, Well, I don't know. A lot of them are kind of like, this is bad. This will be bad. I see what's happening and I'm positioning to profit from it. But I know that the societal impact is a negative and I am sad for this. But there's not a lot you can do, really. I mean, it's sort of a... Can you abdicate responsibility and say like, oh, I can't do anything about this while positioning to profit from it? Is that the responsible thing to do? Is that all you can do? Because once you amass your personal profit from positioning to, you know, capitalize on whatever, you know, rollback of regulation X, Y, Z, maybe then if you amass enough personal wealth, you can donate it to the candidates that you like that will then perpetuate better social rules and help the people from saving, you know, from losing their houses or whatever. So I think that's sort of the train of thought that a lot of them have that, you know, I'm not responsible for what's happening. I will focus on my own kingdom here, this small world where I have control. And insofar as I can affect the outside world, I will do that when I can. Um, I don't know if that's, that feels small to me a little bit. Like I understand it, Yeah. but there's, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a little sad. It's a lot sad. But it's the world we live in with these megalomaniac billionaires like you and me. Um, right. All right, last question for you uh, is Bitcoin. So earlier, about a year ago, I think um, I did. I've done a few Bitcoin podcasts, and mm-hmm. um, and we thought this was going to change everything. It was going to be the thing that people bought. It was going to, you know, I remember the the turn of the year it was it was at 20,000 it was you know hovering around 20,000 bitcoin people were saying it was going to be 60,000 8,000 100,000 it's now down below 6,000 or something of bitcoin and continuing to just oscillate in in midstream do you think that uh that that was another kind of thing that people thought 
that they were going to make a bunch of money on, you know, the the uh, uh, people were shorting it and not shorting it and, you know, so on. Um, uh, was this just another flash-in-the-pan kind of get-quick-rich scheme that didn't turn out the way people thought it would? Or do you think that there's still a chance that something like Bitcoin or some sort of cryptocurrency could actually become a part of the economies that we live in? I think it's kind of a combo. I think that <laughs> the first iteration is so rarely the one that we end up with, right? Like mm. we remember Netscape and, you know, Ask Jeeves and various, you know, for, for younger listeners, those are, you know, forerunners, the pioneers of the web that um, now rest in peace. But, you know, those those did create wealth and create kind of frameworks that we then refined and used to um, accidentally sell all our data. But <laughs> the the first one out the gate, I don't know. I, I think that it's a kind of a, a test case and you you try to figure out, you you know, the entire industry. There's so many brilliant minds working on this and also so many scammers and jokesters working on blockchain and ICOs and Bitcoin and Ethereum, every single currency, crypto asset. You can imagine that I, I've would be hard pressed to think that there's not a, you know, a future for it. I mean, finance people, I used to cover credit default swaps and in my world in credit default swaps, Blythe Masters from JP Morgan is a demigod and she is now um, in a blockchain company. She is, you know, perpetuating, she's evangelizing the the blockchain gospel and Blythe is usually right. Um, I will skip over the part where CDS are blamed for destroying the world in the financial crisis, but there, I think everyone in finance, the kind of joke line is, and I know you've heard it, that um, you know I don't think Bitcoin's the thing, but blockchain, but you know I don't think crypto is the thing, but we're really going to the technology of blockchain is durable, and we're going to use that, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity. I just don't know what that is. So I think that's for sure present, but I also kind of believe in crypto assets. I think. There are just so many uses where, or use cases where you could simplify life and make things easier, like in real estate transactions. And in, um, I don't know if it's going to be buying coffee because you can't necessarily rely on a asset that's value fluctuates by ten thousand um, dollars in a given time set. So, like <laughs> as a store of value, it kind of sucks. But um, but it feels it feels like it might be easier. And there is such a push both from the kind of you know, uh, anarchist side and the hyper-capitalist side. So it's the the sort of ideological Ouroboros coming together to say we need something that's decentralized and away from, you know, individual governments lobbying and, and jostling each other um, with their various currencies and why are we participating in this thing and allowing these currents to control us. Um, there's something kind of viable to that. I don't know if it'll ever take off, though. So I think there's a place for it, but I don't know. Uh, have you always um, been into interested in the bond markets and the yield curves? And was this something you were interested in as a kid, or is it something that you kind of did? You get more interested in it as as your career went in this direction. Um, I was kind of always interested in business because. I don't really understand political journalism in a way. I don't know how to like fact check someone on their assertions if my scoop is just man had a thought. So um, 
typically, like in business journalism, you can be like, actually, sir, I see here it's at $64. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. There's, <laughs> there are numbers where you can actually kind of hold, hold feet to the fire a little. So, Although Trump doesn't believe in those numbers, but yes. That's true. It's very confusing. So <laughs> I struggle with that. Um, so in, I, I majored in business journalism in undergrad, which is a bit unusual. Um, one of the few programs, um, and it was really awesome. And then from there, have gotten sort of more into the weeds of things. And I think it's so fun and interesting because they're always inventing new stuff. And, you know, you can stay on the treadmill running around after them being like, what have you invented? What have you invented? But kind of, there's also this overarching, okay, how does this change what we do in the world? How does this affect how my aunt lives her life? How does this, you know, why does this translate to a new bridge or a a broken road? Like, where does it manifest? That's the stuff that I think is so interesting. Hmm. All right. So very last question, and we will let you get out of here and go back to your reporting. Uh, We'll We'll bring it back to our crazy friend, Elon Musk. Do you think that Tesla survives under Musk? Or do you think that, as the short sellers have predicted, that, that this is a company that's in grave trouble and, uh, uh, and we will see it crumble into misery? Well, I think there's a lot already in place. And it's actually a little bit hard I think, to just crumble it. I mean, it does happen, obviously, but there's more Okay, maybe not crumble. Maybe value. it gets acquired by, like, mm-hmm. Ford or something. Oh, that's for sure. Like, that would be possible. But I think, or, you know, you know, a Saudi, Saudi Arabian wealth fund takes it over. All of this is possible. I think the best scenario, the most likely scenario is probably that Elon hires a number two person. The board, like, diminishes his roll a little bit. And it's unclear to me, like, necessarily how well that would go. Because again, if you've got such an acute case of founderitis, it's hard to let someone else run things. Um, But that to me feels like the most likely. And that's like, you know, maybe the stock will continue to fall and settle out, you know, mid twos or something. There's a lot of tangible value. They create products that people like actually genuinely really love. But it is... um, it is kind of disastrous inside the company. So, you know, there's a there's a narrow uh, bit of daylight there where Musk could continue as CEO. I, oof, if he stays in as CEO, I mean, yeah, I would short it too. But um, if <laughs> if they manage to get somebody in there, even as like COO or number two to him, or in some way sharing responsibility with him, frankly, babysitting him, um, he would probably find that to be a relief, and so would any. Uh, long Tesla stockholders. Well, on that note, uh, Mary Childs, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has really been fascinating, um, and uh, we'll have you back on soon. When you're, you're, you have a book that you're you're working on right now, is that right? I am. Yes, Bill Gross and Kemco. We, we we are very excited to. Have, we'll have you back on when that comes out, and 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 if Tesla disintegrates in some form or another we'll, we'll we'll have you back on for that so there's lots of different worlds where you come come back on here Perfect. Uh, thank you so much i really really appreciate it thank you this has been so fun 
Thanks to my guest today, Mary Childs. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hub with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, you, the listener, and my sponsor, Vitamin Water. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Don't forget, I will see you all next week with Emily Jane Fox, where we're going to talk about Trump, Cohen, the end of the world, how we're all probably living in a simulation, and how Donald Trump is here to break it. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.